0: Good morning, my name is Bryce Hales, I'm the pastor here, and if you have a Bible, I would like to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, if you're following along and there's a blue Bible near you on the floor, and you can find uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at starting on page 978 this morning. Well, have you ever had a day um, like this? Maybe... You got home from work, or from you know just being out of the house, and uh, this happens to me with startling regularity. I come home after the day of work. I open the door to our house, and just opening the door, I can hear the noise, <laughs> the chaos, um, the uh, the frustration. Can read like the exhaustion. On, uh, on my wife's face before you know, we even say anything. You just kind of open the door and you know, I know that like, whew, this is gonna take it out of me, right? And the temptation is to just kind of like, pull the door closed and walk away. Anybody ever had a day like that? I just say that because that's a little bit the way I feel when I look at the passage that I'm about to read to you this morning. Um, the, there's a potential for mess here. <laughs> And as we think about what it means that God has brought us into a family, what I want you to see this morning is that the gospel changes everything about our lives. And this morning we're looking in particular about uh, how the gospel changes our relationships. So if you would stand with me as we give our attention to God's word in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21. This is God's word. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Father, as uh, we always need your help when we come to your word, but especially when we're going to look at relationships in general, and the relationship of husbands and wives and children and parents, and what are we even going to do with this bit about slavery? God, would you be with us? Uh, would you give us grace? Would you give us yourself? Would you give us humility to not um, think more highly of ourselves than we have the ability to hear what you say to us in your word? We pray this to you, our Father, through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated, please. Okay, so let's talk about baseball. That seems like the obvious first place to start. Uh, if you know anything about baseball, you know, you may know that the Yankees and the Red Sox are two teams that don't like each other a whole lot. It's one of the most intense rivalries in all of sports, the uh, the relationship between these two fan or these two teams and their fans. But twice something has happened that transcended this bitter rivalry in September of 2001, about a week after the terrorist attacks in New York City and Washington, D.C. I don't know if you can remember if you're old enough, most of you probably are old enough to remember back to that time where it seemed like, remember the life of the nation, just everybody hit pause on everything for a week and there were no flights for a few days and businesses were closed and just normal life seemed to just hit pause. And about a week after September 11th, as the nation was still reeling from those terrorist attacks, the Boston Red Sox restarted their season with a home game at uh, Fenway Park in Boston. Now, if you know anything about the Red Sox, you know that during the seventh inning stretch at Fenway Park, they play, uh, I don't know why nobody sings Take Me Out to the Ball Game anymore, but they sing Sweet Caroline. The or uh, the Neil Diamond song, right? But this um, this day, in light of all that was happening and it had happened in the life of the nation, the um, the Boston Red Sox didn't sing "Sweet Caroline." This is beautiful. But instead, they sing, they sang "New York, New York," right? The Yankees song, and it's a beautiful picture of. Um, unity in the face of adversity, in the face of tragedy, overlooking rivalry and standing together. And the Yankees didn't forget this because 12 years later, after the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013, a few days later there was a home game at Yankee Stadium in New York. And in the bottom of the third inning at Yankee Stadium, Sweet Caroline begins to come over the PA system. <laughs> it's such a beautiful I don't know why it's <laughs> just baseball, I'm <in> choking <laughs> me up. <laughs> but it's this moving,' it's this beautiful picture of unity in the face of adversity, and um, standing together in the face of these challenges and overcoming the, the rivalry that stands between these two teams. And it's beautiful. And the reason it's beautiful is because in moments of difficulty, and moments of tragedy, we are moved when we see one team, or any person really, lay down their rights, their preferences, their privileges for the sake of somebody else. Giving themselves up for somebody else. It's beautiful and it's moving when rivalry is overcome by unity. And as we come to the end of, uh, we're approaching the end of the book of Ephesians and our series through the book, And what Paul is saying is this, that for those who are members of the family of God, all of our relationships should be characterized by that sort of love, that sort of self-sacrifice, that sort of laying down our lives for the sake of others. It's not simply when um, we face adversity, we face crisis, we face difficulty, that the Bible calls us to kind of rise to meet the occasion. But Paul is saying, and the the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul is saying, that that's the sort of beautiful relationships that Christians in the family of God should pursue as we give ourselves up for the benefit of our spouses and our families and our co-workers. Throughout Ephesians, Paul has been making a case. He's been explaining the, the majesty of God's work through Jesus. And he's been talking about where there once was hostility between people like us, people in general, right? But people like us and God, where there was once hostility and enmity between God and us, that Jesus has brought peace and he has put an end to the hostility and he has has restored a relationship with God and us. And not simply with God and us, but the good news is not not simply that God um, enters into a relationship with us again, but that he brings us into a relationship with his family, with, with the church. And we've been looking at that, and that's kind of the message that Paul hits over and over again in the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, he gets to the so what. Okay, so that's true, God loves you, you have a family, but what difference does that make? In the second half of the book, he applies all that he has said. And it's important that that order, that we don't reverse that order. That God, God loves you, and therefore we respond. God loves you, and therefore we obey. We cannot reverse that order as Christians. But the gist of what he's saying is that the goodness of Jesus means that you have peace with God, and you have a family, and because of that, it will affect everything about the way that you live your life. And today we're looking at what it says about our relationships. The impact that the gospel will have in our relationship so as we're diving in two quick caveats and the first is I just want to acknowledge that what this passage brings before us has the potential for tremendous healing and also the the power for tremendous hurt and even just like opening up the question of the relationship of men and women and children and parents and co-workers um, uh, even just bringing up the issue can kind of surface pain in our pasts, and I, and I just want to acknowledge that and say that that's okay, and that I want to be gentle in, in how we talk about this this morning, but it's worth it because our, like the, the meaning of our lives and the, kind of the place where we actually live our lives is at the intersection of me and you, and you and other people, right? It's, it's in our relationships that our lives find meaning and purpose. And so we have to look, if, if the gospel means anything about our lives, it has to say something about our relationships. We need the help, because as a culture we are confused. The second thing I want to say is this, if you're sitting here and you're like looking around the room and you're going, where is his wife? <laughs> like You're going to talk about husbands and wives and your wife isn't even here, she wouldn't, I just like, I'm saying this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but in case anybody is that cynical, um, Ashley is teaching Sunday school this morning, so don't worry. It's a, and it's purely coincidental. We did not plan it that way. So, how does the gospel speak to our relationships? There's lots of ground um, to cover. I, frankly, I may have bitten off more than I can chew um, in, in all of this. I'm not going to um, I'm not gonna answer every single question that's going to come up. And uh, I'd be happy to talk more about it. I'm not trying to, like skirt past anything. And so if there are questions that you have, uh, send me an email, text me, go to resoc.life, fill out the contact form. I would love to sit down and talk with you uh, to your heart's content about any of this. Um, Paul talks about husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters. And we don't have a ton of time to go into detail on everything here. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk just in general about relationships in general. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a little bit more time going into a little bit more detail about men and women and husbands and wives. Um, but I also wanted to say this because um, whenever the Bible, whenever anybody mentions just slavery in general, I think that it's like this flashy neon sign going like, what in the world are we going to do with that? And, um, and so I don't really have time to say a whole lot, but what I want to say um, is this, that when the Bible... Um, right, The Bible was written in a time when slavery was a reality in the world. And the Bible doesn't condone slavery, but it, it, it speaks into that culture. And there is a, there's a fairly, I think, um, strong insinuation in this passage, but especially in the book of Philemon, um, where the Apostle Paul writes to those who own slaves and says, look, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's this strong implication that you don't have the right to own another human being, especially if you call them a brother in Christ. So um, most scholars, most pastors, when we come to this section about slaves and masters, apply this in terms of employers and employees. And that's kind of how I'm gonna handle it this morning. Okay, so with all that background, what does this tell us about men and women, husbands, wives, children, parents? Well, the first thing, that we have to see is the absolute equality in every possible sense of every human being Uh, that's the first thing that this passage and i think the bible the new testament particularly but the entire bible would want us to believe about the way we're going to relate to one another and i think that um, what the bible lays out for us is a lofty ideal that if we can actually begin to understand it and live into it is a beautiful picture Of equality and mutual love and submission that if we as a church could live into it would be a source of light and hope to those around us so the absolute equality of all human beings we have to see this because um, when we look at this passage I think the word that's gonna stand out to us is is like the words like submission and obey and uh, we're like those are like depending on our background those are like swear words for some of us right Um, Those are not good words for Americans, for the most part. And we live in a time when our highest ideal, as as at least Westerners, the highest value that we have is freedom. And the idea that anything that anything that would restrain our freedom just seems like this massive miscarriage of justice to us. And I think that we have to start by saying, on the whole, the Bible not only endorses, but is actually the source of that ideal. Um, we, uh, we live in a time where in some ways we've inherited from previous generations, uh, and in some ways our generation current generations have been a part of advancing this, but, but where the, the liberation of particularly women and children and workers um, you know, has, has, has grown and has increased in our time, right? And as Christians, we should be the first people to stand up and say that that is a good and a right and a beautiful thing. And those of us who claim the name of Jesus need to acknowledge with shame that our past, our history, the church, has not often... Um, well, even to put it mildly, at sometimes the church has been content with the status quo. And so has helped per- per- perpetuate some forms of oppression. And that should grieve us, and that's something that we should repent of. So nothing in this passage is at odds with... Um, This kind of drive towards freedom and the liberation of those who are oppressed, those who are humiliated, those who are exploited. And in fact, it's just the opposite because the reality is that Jesus is the, the true and ultimate source of any true freedom that we have. It was Jesus that treated women with respect and honor in a time and a place where they were despised or used in culture. Jesus went out of his way to notice women, to talk about them, to, or to talk to them, and to heal them. And that might seem like a minor point to us. It might seem that way. Um, but just this week, um, I was talking, Ashley Peters and I were talking about the ministry of Young Lives. And, uh, and Ashley was telling me about a conversation that she would had with uh, Young Lives is a ministry that works with, with teen moms. And, um, and the leader of that ministry was talking about a conversation in a Bible study where these young teen moms were just so moved that Jesus had the time to stop and talk to a prostitute. And that he dignifies women, Jesus dignified women with his time. Um, Jesus doesn't exploit her, but shows her that she is known and cared for and seen and loved. It was Jesus who said... Um, let the little children come to me in a time that said children are to be not only you know not only should they not be like a seen seen but not heard right but they shouldn't even be seen and Jesus said no let the little children come to me i have time for them he dignified children um, in a time and a place when unwanted babies were left at the dump in a time and a place where unwanted children would be left in public to be picked up by others for use as slaves or prostitutes. Jesus dignified children with this time. Jesus dignifies and gives honor to manual labor in his work as a carpenter, and in his uh, statement that he came not to be served, but to serve. So we can't read anything in this passage in any way that contradicts any of that, the absolute equality, dignity, um, Value of all human beings who are created in the image of God. Um, Paul has been gone to great lengths in this in this book, in the book of Ephesians and elsewhere, to talk about the absolute unity of all believers in the church. And so we can't miss this. It it might not be incredibly obvious to us today, but when Paul writes these words, he's, he's addressing the women and the children, and the slaves who would have been in the church in Ephesus. I mean, think about what's happening. Paul is in prison in Rome, and he writes this letter to that's taken to the church in Ephesus, and it would have been read to the church on Sunday morning. And what he doesn't say is, husbands, when you get home, tell your wives that they should submit. And he doesn't say, parents, when you get home, tell your children, remind them to obey. And he doesn't say, masters, you know, remind your slaves that they ought to obey. No, he actually addresses women and children and slaves. What does that mean? Well, it implies that they were there, right? Um, every good Jewish man would wake up each morning and pray this this prayer that was common to a Jews at the time, and part of that prayer was, God, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And here in the Christian church, within maybe 30 years of Jesus' crucifixion, we see a church, you know, hundreds, I don't know, thousands of miles away from Jerusalem, where there are not just men, um, and there are not just slave masters, and there are not just parents, but there are also women and children and slaves that would have been there in the congregation on Sunday morning. Jesus dignifies his people, all people. The message of the God of the Bible to every man, woman, and child, and especially those who our society overlooks, is this, that God sees you, that God knows you, that God loves you. Okay, that's, that's the starting point. We have to see that if we're going to embody the beautiful self-giving ways of relating to one another that um, in the church that the Bible envisions for us, We have to start with the absolute dignity, value, worth, equality of all human beings, regardless of race or gender or age or anything else. But secondly, the Bible talks about roles. Um, And uh, I'm going to say, you know, this is probably going to offend everybody at some point (laughs) in the next few minutes, what I'm going to say here. but maybe the most audacious thing that the Bible claims is not actually what it says about men and women, but about the larger claim it's making about the reality of our lives. Because what it's what's, what's implying is, is that God is so audacious that he would arrange all of human history as like a, a play or an illustration or a symbol of a larger reality that is the, um, the relationship of God to himself. And in, you know, I mean, one of the unique features, beliefs of Christianity is that we believe in a God who is not only one um, but is also many. Right? The, the, from the earliest days in the New Testament, the Christian church has said, God, there's only one God and yet God reveals himself in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are absolutely equal in every single way. its It's like I mean, I can't overemphasize. It's heresy to imply that Jesus, who submits to the will of the Father, is somehow less than God. Do you understand? That's heresy. Like, if you say Jesus submits to the Father because he is less than the Father, that you can't be a Christian and make that statement. Right? It's heresy. And so when the Bible says uh, what it says about the roles of husbands and wives in particular here, it's not saying that because there is like an inherent inferiority in anyone. It's saying that God has ordered human history such that all of our lives, all of our experiences, all of our like outworking and especially the life of the church is meant as, a, as an illustration, as a play of the, of the relationship that God has in himself. And like a... Um, uh, like like a like like in a play, God gives certain roles to certain people, not because they are more or less worthy of certain roles, but just because, just because he does. He is audacious enough to use us as an, as, as actors in his production, and just like actors in a play, he uses us and gives us roles in the grand narrative of human history. And so what that means for us again is that as individual people, we are absolutely everyone is absolutely equal in value. And yet, as he gives roles to men and women, and husbands and wives, and children, and parents and workers and employers, that we have roles that are distinct. We have roles that are distinct. And the roles that he gives to us are these to the wives the wives and children and servants or slaves or employees, God gives us the role to submit. And to husbands and parents and to those who direct the work of others, he gives us the role not of authority. <laughs> I mean, it's somehow implied in there, but the word authority is not actually found in this passage. But he gives us the role of loving and nurturing and serving and caring. Now we need to talk about this because most of us are probably thinking, I don't really like my role and I want a different one. So what do those words actually mean? The word submission, let's just be clear, the word submission is not a synonym for inferiority. People have gotten themselves in all kinds of trouble by trying to say more than the Bible says here. This doesn't mean that women... Um, can't have jobs, that women can't own property. It doesn't mean any any of those things. Um, and notice that the Bible doesn't really give any explanation for the why, other than what I've already said about the nature of the way God interacts with human history in general. Um, and what I mean is this. People have stri- tried to say, why does God um, give the role of submission to the wife? And, and Christians have wrongly said stupid, dumb, offensive things like women are just like, they're emotional and men are more level headed. And so they need to be the ones that make the decisions. And that's stupid and wrong and dumb. I am like way more less level headed than my wife is. Um, as most of you have probably gathered by this point already. The only reason is because of the role that God has given to each of us. He's ordered human history, and in particular the church, as this drama that displays his love, God's love for himself, and his love for his people in Christ. And so submission doesn't mean that women are inferior to men in any way. Submission, according to the Bible, is a voluntary self-giving. I mean, think back to what I said about the baseball songs earlier. Um, You know, the Red Sox... Uh, voluntarily give up their own song for the sake of the Yankees and vice versa. Submission is a voluntary self-giving. Okay, but what about love? Surely, like that, like the husbands get the better end of the deal, right? Um, What does it mean to love? Well, um, first of all, we have to see in the first century that nobody got married for love. Like, you can look at this today and be like, well, everybody gets married for love. So it's like, it's just... Doesn't mean anything, right? Nobody got married in the first century for love. Okay, they got married for, um, like, because it was a good business deal. Um, men, you know, powerful men especially would have had uh, mistresses. You know, they didn't get married for sex, they would have had mistresses for that. Um, they didn't get married for companionship. Men would have had their own friends and treated their wives more like property. And so you got married if your wife could bring you a good name. And if there was maybe some financial benefit to you, and the Bible says, "No husbands, you are to love your wives, you are not to use them you 're not to get married for because of what you get out of that relationship, but you are to marry for love, or at least <laughs> make you know let me say it differently you are to love the one you marry i mean it 's much later that the idea of getting married for love comes into the equation right um, but you are to love the one whom you marry the model of A husband's relationship to his wife is the way that Jesus loves his church. And in this passage, um, at the end of chapter 5, Paul uses five different verbs to explain Jesus' love for his church. And then he immediately says this is how husbands are to love their wives. He says that uh, Jesus loved her, he gave himself up for her, he sanctifies her, he cleanses her, and then having done all that, he presents her to himself. He goes over and above to explain the kind of love that he has in mind. Jesus' love for his church is so complete and so thorough and so self-giving that anybody who looks at this and says, well, husbands are really getting off easy, is just really not paying attention. The challenge of human relationships is the challenge of unity and diversity. Just in general, how can we get along when we are so different? And we see every day new evidence in the news of just how far we are failing as a culture, as a society, as people, on whatever scale you choose to look at it, right? Like, I mean, last week we got home and found out 20 people murdered in church. And then there was, I think, another one since that, right? I mean, it's like every single week, we can't, why is it so hard for people who are different from one another to get along with one another. And our world looks at this and says, the problem, uh, well, the solution, rather, is this, that everybody just do whatever makes you happy. You just do you, right? Um, Whatever, like, you've gotta discover yourself, you've gotta find yourself, and you've gotta live. Don't let anybody hold you back. You just make yourself happy. And the Bible says, no, you need to ground your relationships in a love that is greater than yourself. The beauty of what God is doing in the world is that all of human history is like a play or a production that is just an outworking of the triune God's love for himself, the love that he has in himself, And the uniqueness of the Bible's teaching, as I've said, is that God is not just a me, but God is a we. God is not just one, but God is also many. There's only one God, but God exists eternally in community as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before there was ever land or people or much less conflict, the triune God existed in a perfect community of equality and love. And so God creates humanity as an overflow of his love for himself. And what this means for us is that human relationships find their meaning and their proper rhythm as they are modeled after the pattern of God's relationship to God's self. The three persons of the Godhead are absolutely equal in every way. And like I said a minute ago, to suggest otherwise is heresy. Um... And so we cannot say that wives submit to their husbands. And let me just pause and say this for a second, because I didn't make this clear. But it says wives submit to your own husbands. <laughs> it, like it doesn't say women submit to men. It says wives submit to your own husbands. But the reason the Bible says that is not because women are like wives are inferior to their husbands. That wouldn't be, I mean, think about that. The word submission implies two people who are equal submitting their goods, rights, preferences to the other one, right? If if women are inferior to men, then it's not actually submission, it's just recognizing inferiority. And so the Bible's use of the language of submission um, cannot mean in any way that women are inferior in worth or value or intelligence to men. But even more than that, we can't say that because it would imply that the son submits to the father because he is less than a father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son because he's just like their lackey and has to (laughs) do what they say. Uh, And that's heresy. Listen, human relationships are messy. And they're messy in the best of circumstances. But God's purpose is to enact a divine drama for the world as the church displays God's love for his people by calling us to recognize the dignity of all human beings and submit and lovingly serve one another. And so he um, addresses us and he gives this instruction to us. And the world says, no one will look out for you. Uh, No one will take care of you. You've got to hold on to whatever it is that you have do whatever makes you feel good, don't worry about anyone else, don't let anyone hold you back, you've gotta fight for your rights. But the reality is that that is slavery. And the Christian looks and says, no, I'm gonna surrender my rights for your own benefit. I'm going to give up my desires in order to serve you. I'm gonna sacrifice myself to make you whole, that's what the Bible calls us to do. And so the obvious question is how in the world in the world can we ever do that? And what the gospel drives us to is this, that we can only give up our rights and submit to one another and move towards each other in loving service when we have been made whole in Jesus. Um, Almost every Sunday recently, um, my wife demonstrates to me just the goodness of Jesus But on Sunday morning, as I'm like anxious and stressed and nervous, as I'm getting ready for worship, she comes and says, it's just so beautiful and so simple, she says, I love you, and you're mine, and I got you, and even if you make a fool of yourself today, I still love you. And that's a beautiful, like, I don't have the ability in myself to be who I need to be in front of you and for you every week. And I need somebody else who comes alongside me and reminds me that I am loved, not because of what I do, but simply because of who I am. And that's a beautiful picture of the way that Ashley has actually enacted the gospel in our marriage, because, let's be honest, it took us a long time to figure that one out. We can only give up ourselves for others if we are whole in Jesus And so ultimately, when we look at the question of relationships and how we're to relate to one another, we have to come back to the cross. Because it's on the cross that we see the ultimate picture of one giving up his life for his bride. On the cross, we see the one who actually uh, was, you know, I, I mean, why would anybody, why would Jesus submit to anyone And yet on the cross we see the one who is worthy of all power and glory and majesty and authority, giving up all that he is, stripped naked, humbling himself, submitting even to the point of death. And as the crowd taunts him and the soldiers say, if you really are the Christ, save yourself and call on the angels and they will come and minister to you. He doesn't. Why? Because he's submitting himself to his bride, the church, which is us. And it's only as we look not just to Jesus as an example, but we see Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, the way he submitted his entirety to us, and as that reality actually fills us, that we become whole people and are enabled to move out with love and submission to our coworkers, to our children, to our parents, to our husbands, and to our wives. I heard a story about a young girl, a young teenager who was in a horrible accident. And as a result of this accident, she had to have her her, uh, arm amputated. And as a young teenager, this was so just um, traumatic that for a year, uh, she didn't go to school, she withdrew from church, uh, she didn't interact with friends, And for this whole, for an entire year, just kind of was consumed by the tragedy of this experience. And after some time, she worked up the courage to go back to church. And her mom uh, called her Sunday school teacher. And of course, knowing what had happened, explaining to the Sunday school teacher, Could you just not call any special attention to her in any way? And the Sunday school teacher said, Of course. But on Saturday night, um, he got sick, and he did what all of you would do, which is found a suitable replacement for himself without calling the pastor and dropping it on his plate. Right? Well, that's what we do, right? We're going to talk more about that at the welcome line. <laughs> back up! Back up! Back up! Sunday school teacher finds a replacement, but forgot to pass along the detail about the young girl who is going to be back at church that morning. And the Sunday school teacher was teaching a lesson about the unity of the church, the body of Christ. And was they're doing that, you know, um, this is the church, this is the steeple, open the doors, and you see all the people. And as the Sunday school class is, is doing this, the girl with one hand begins to weep. as She's just confronted again with her own, you know, lack of wholeness. And as this happens, a boy in the class, seeing her and seeing what's going on, comes up beside her and puts his hand together with hers. And together, they act out this thing with their hands. And that's just a simple thing, right? But it's a beautiful picture of what the gospel does in our relationships for people who are different from one another. Come together. And having been so filled with the love of Christ and made whole because of his sacrifice for us, we move towards husbands and wives and children and co-workers and neighbors and anyone that we encounter. Not with this sense that I need something from you to make myself whole, but I am whole in Christ. And therefore, I can give up my rights, my preferences, everything that I am, in order to bring the love of God into your life to make you whole. And that's what love and submission looks like in practice. Will you pray with me? God, these are um, challenging words for many of us. And yet I hope that they're also beautiful words. I hope that in this time you have given us just a glimpse of what it might look like to live in light of the gospel and our relationships that we might know again the depth of Jesus' sacrifice for us and how he fills us uh, how he makes us whole how by your spirit you come and live in us to cleanse us and to change us God I pray that as a church um We would so know the the wholeness of Jesus that we might move towards one another, not out of hunger, in in this kind of desperate need to fill ourselves at the expense of others, but that we might submit to one another and love one another, even as Jesus has done for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.